Thank you so much, Pastor Sinkun. And welcome everyone here. And we always say, for every service that we have here, you're part of something historic. And this weekend, you're part of something historic because we are resuming our Children's Church pilot program for the primary school that begins tomorrow. And this weekend, beginning with this service at 5 p.m., we're beginning our communion on-site. So I hope you would have picked the elements up, the bread and the cup, which we'll celebrate after the final song. Thank you so much. By God's grace, we have learned much from, his book, uh, from this book, His Word, Genesis chapter 1 to 50. So the first thing that we're going to cover today is the whole theme about starting, continuing, and finishing. It's a very important thing in life to know how we start, how we continue, and how we finish. On Tuesday, two workers were packing goods in a warehouse when one worker heard a loud thud and found the other lying on the ground face up. The worker died from his injuries after he was taken to hospital. The next day, in a separate incident, two workers were repairing a machine when one of his parts fell on one of them, and very sadly, he also died. All I'm reading is a news report. And the news report's headline is, Five deaths at work sites, two weeks in two weeks. A grim reminder for companies in Singapore to keep safety a priority. When we reflect on that, five workers go off to work in the morning and five of them die. They would have come here having borrowed money in their villages or their towns, in India, in Bangladesh. They would have had to scrim every cent to get an agent and the agent would have secured them a visa. And then after they arrive here, they would have found a job. The starting would be promising. Imagine the scene for them as they said goodbye to their, their father, their mother, their children, who they may not see for years on end. The starting is full of promise. The continuing is full of promise. But all of a sudden, the finishing is tragic. I'm sure all of us here in Singapore would have read this. Raphael, who died of cancer before getting his PSLE results. He was brave. He was inquisitive and thoughtful, says his parents. So for the sake of all the global audience tuning in, let me give a little bit of the background of Raphael. Again, I read. Raphael was dealt with various cancers had dealt with various cancers since he was born, as he had leave from many syndrome, a genetic disorder which predisposed him to a wide range of cancers. His first operation was at eight months of birth for a very rare cancer, a rare cancer of soft tissue, and this was in 2008. A year after the treatment, the disease went into remission, but surfaced in 2016, eight years later. That required a second operation in primary two for osteosarcoma. Now, not just a soft tissue, but a bone cancer and in his left forearm. He had to lose the arm the following year to halt the spread of the cancer. But through it all, Raffaele never gave up. His inquisitive mind, his genuine interest in learning saw him persevere through the PSLE, and for those turning in, that's a major national exam for primary six students. And he sat for the exams and managed to score 220 points. And he, the school he went to was Alexandra Primary School. Raphael's fighting spirit and zest for life inspired his classmates and other cancer patients at KK Women's and Children's Hospital. He would go around to encourage the other cancer patients in this ward which also earned him the Inspirational Patient and Caregiver Award of Kandang Kerbau Hospital of 2020. Two different ways, starting, continuing. In one sense, sadly for Raphael, but he finished right, don't you think? He finished well. He never allowed the cancer to change him. He never allowed that to dispirit him and discourage him in life. 
When we read the first book of the Bible, which is Genesis, it tells us about the starting, the continuation, and the, the finishing of what we call the four patriarchs, all the way from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph. And it's very important that we understand the message that's being sent by God to us from then to now and continuing into the future. So to truly get on top of this, we need to get everybody on board. And so a summary of, let's see, a summary of Genesis 1 to 50, we could call this, we, we could have this as an outline because I'm giving you a summary after we deal with chapter 50 in a summarized form. It's the story of four patriarchs. And there are three blessings as we go back to his original blessing given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And it's all about two humanities. And finally, it's about our one God and who this God is and what he desires of us and what he rightly demands of us. In chapter 50 itself, a simple outline to understand this, the first few verses are about Jacob's death. And they'll be followed by Joseph and his brothers after their father passes away. And then it'll be about Joseph's death itself for the end of the chapter. So as we read just then, and just to refresh our memory, hear this. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him, kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many were required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. I summarize for us. The first thing to note is, with the passing of Jacob, Joseph wept, which was a revelation of who he was, his love, his heart. And you saw this, and you're going to see this experience and expression from him again and again. His love, his warm-heartedness, his tender-heartedness shown in so many different ways. With the passing of his father, he directed his own physician to do the embalming. Why? And the commentators say, the writers say, that maybe the Egypt, Egyptian embalmers usually had religious connotations and he didn't want that to mess up where he was coming from. And so he asked his physician to do the embalming. 40 days of embalming, seven days, 70 days of mourning, perhaps overlap with each other. And then, as you go on to read the story, from verse 4 onwards, he sends a message to Pharaoh. For what? He sends a message to Pharaoh about the death, the sorrow, the bereavement. And why did he... See, he was Pharaoh's right-hand man. Why didn't he tell him personally? Because with death and bereavement, there is the belief of being unclean. And so he kept himself from Pharaoh. All the conditions of that time required them. And so he sent the message. And the message was very simple. Let me go to bury my father. You know, through COVID-19, as the cases rise around the world, we thank God that it has come under control, inverted commas, here in Singapore. If somebody fell ill with this, and you had a loved one, a father, a mother, a grandparent overseas, you might not make it back. And that would be a sad thing. This is what he's saying. This is what he's experiencing. Let me go and bury my father. He's seeking the permission, and he says in verse 5 to Pharaoh, in that message, I will return. Because there's a risk here. Because he's going back to his roots. As we go back to our roots, it tugs at our hearts. This is who I really am. I was born here. My roots, my parents came from here. Everything about me finds itself here. But I've been now sojourning in Egypt because of the treachery of my brothers. But he promises Pharaoh, I will return. He sought his permission, he gave his assurance. He sought his permission, he gave his assurance. And so it was given. Pharaoh says in verse 6, Go up, go up and bury your father. But not just that. As you read verse 7, it says this. Verse 7 says that he goes up. And who does he bring? 
officials, dignitaries, and it says at the end of that portion, a very large company. Have you ever attended a funeral with a very large company sent by the whole country, sent by the most important person of that nation? But strangely, the children are not allowed to go. Why do you think so? Maybe they were held back as a guarantee that he, Joseph, would come back. I have the assurance, but leave the children here, all your children here. And so he goes, and there is a foreign funeral, an Egyptian funeral in Canaan, a foreign funeral in a local place, and the place is called Abel Mizraim, the place where Egyptians moan. And why is that important? The key is actually this. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. You've been, been following the story, the story of God saving his people. This is an important thing because where Jacob is buried, is actually in the land of Canaan. Though he went down to Egypt to seek refuge from the famine, and he had, by God's wisdom and God's empowerment, secured the first foot in Canaan. Remember, he insisted that he will not receive this land as a gift. Why will he not receive this land as a gift? Verbally. Because anything given verbally, not black and white, can be taken back. He wanted to buy this land, remember that? And he bought it and it became the first installment of God's people in Canaan. And then we move to the heart of the final chapter. And the heart of the final chapter is not simply Joseph bidding farewell to his father, but Joseph and his brothers and their relationships. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. They sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. And what was this command? Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, Please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept and he spoke to him. Did you notice, or at least maybe I read, there is no sign that the brothers wept or they were sorrowful. It was Joseph alone among them. So a father dies. And when a father dies and there is inherited sibling rivalry, what happens? When a patriarch or matriarch dies, when a father or mother dies and there's sibling rivalry, it will explode. <laughs> because for all those years that the father was alive, the mother was alive, it was just suppressed. It was never dealt with, it was never eradicated. And so they fear. Notice the language is, if we go backwards, it may be that Joseph will hate us. Nowhere in this account does it ever say that Joseph hated them. It was they who hated him. They hated him so much, it is called murderous anger. Murderous anger means, I will not be satisfied until you disappear from my life. I'll only be happy after you disappear from my life once and for all. And that's what happened to them. And so, why is this important? Hate was their language, the language of the brothers. It was never on Joseph's minds and never on Joseph's lips. And the evil was never on Joseph's mind and never on Joseph's lips. Evil was in their minds and upon their lips and upon their hands. So what do we see here? An important thing to note personally, pastorally, spiritually, that when we plot evil in our hearts, we tend to do the blame thing. We extrapolate it to others. We dump it on others. And that was, that began in Genesis chapter 3. The woman you put here when God confronted Adam 
What happened here? You, you rebelled against me. You disobeyed me. You, you ate of the fruit of the tree of good and knowledge. And Adam says, no, the woman you put here, the extrapolation of sin to others, the blaming of sin on others, runs very deep. It sends a message. They now use the Father's name for what? No, I used the wrong word to describe that. They now misuse their Father's name for what? They now misuse their Father's name for their own self-preservation. Whether the Father actually said this, we do not know, but they use it because they, are, they will do anything to preserve themselves. And so, lessons, very important for us to take note. His brothers also came and fell before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? When you read this and you've been following the storyline, Joseph actually not just suffered the sibling rivalry of his brothers, but then it worsened because he had a dream. And in his dream, he, dreamed, he dreamt of sheaves. And all their sheaves fell to bow down to him. Guess what? This, in chapter 50, is the fulfillment of it finally. After the fulfillment of it finally, after such piercing pain of family treachery, betrayed by your own brothers, stabbed in the back by your own brothers, and this dream was fulfilled finally, after such a long time and after so many sins. And what's the point we have to learn about God and His redemption purposes, God and His rescue plan for us? That sometimes it takes, uh, oftentimes, it takes a long time for God to work out His purposes. And so, Joseph's brothers, they were wrong in their hearts but did you notice, right to the end, they are always manipulating circumstances, perhaps even manipulating their father and the father's speech, manipulating circumstances to look right, to preserve themselves. So they saw no need to ever search their hearts. I just want to pause there to ask you, when you and me are either the victims or perpetrators of sin, and something is brewing in your heart or my heart, it is time to search our hearts before it is time to change our circumstances. But if you put more energy and time into changing your circumstances, it means you haven't learned the lesson from God. All you want to do is to be able to hide your sin and, ex and blame someone else. They were wrong in their heart, but they were always manipulating circumstances to look right. Who was Joseph? How was Joseph different in contrast to his brothers? Joseph, on the other hand, was not wrong in his heart. There was no malice, there was no envy. He was right in his heart. And he was always humbly trusting God to change his circumstances. So it was him who always made sure that his heart was right with God. That's how he escaped Potiphar's drip, drip, drip seduction of him day by day. A woman seducing us, throwing themselves at us as men. My goodness, our pride will be fed to the limit. That's the only way he did it. Because he said, I cannot sin against my master. I cannot sin against my God. He was always watching his heart. So I ask of you, whatever moral battles you're facing now, are you pausing to search your heart or are you putting tremendous effort to change your circumstances? When God says, I want you to do the former, search your heart, confess your sin, repent, we do not find the brothers doing that sincerely. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive, as they are today. So do not fear, 
I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. What do you see in this man, Joseph? You see an unthinkable response to his siblings who had stabbed him in the back and caused him such piercing pain over a long period of time. And there are many plots and there are many schemes. Even now, after the passing of their father, still the plots and the schemes and the half-truths flow from their hearts and flow from their lips into their lives and action. And what does Joseph do in the light of all this? This is what he does. And this is a totally unusual man, a totally unusual character, this fourth patriarch. The gospel story is the long arm of sin as we saw it begin in, the, in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. The long arm of sin harms us. It may hurt us. But you must trust the longer arm of God to save us and redeem us in the end. If there was a first character of the Bible to experience this, to show us a model of this, to show us a snapshot of this, it would be Joseph. So I do not know what sins you have been victimized with. And whatever sins you've been victimized with, it could have pierced your heart to the point of depression, to the point of giving up on your faith in God. But listen to this passage. It may have been a long period of time he was, he was dubbed in he was betrayed at 17 years old. 17. And for the next 10, 20 years, this lingered, this traumatized him. But it didn't. Because he trusted in the longer arm and the bigger heart of God to save him from evil and evil men and evil women. And so as we reflect on Joseph, the transition between the third patriarch and the last patriarch. Each one of them are what I call lifelong learners of what? Lifelong learning is a huge thing now. And COVID-19 has swept the world. And all of a sudden, as COVID-19 sweeps the world, we are faced with totally unprepared structural unemployment. What you and I thought were iron rice bowls, aviation industry, Port of Singapore Authority, things can go upside down, belly up overnight, as we are now discovering globally and locally. Right? They were lifelong learners of what? So governments everywhere tell you, you've got to be a lifelong learner because somewhere along the line, when your industry is wiped out by something, you have to upskill and change what totally... You, you were doing this for 10 years, but the next 10 years, you've got to be a nurse. The next 10 years, you've got to be a therapist. The next 10 years, you got to... I just got a message from someone and he's been looking for a job. And part of his message to me yesterday was, it's been a trying time, been, been a trying time since I left my last job because I did grab and I did various things. And it caused lots of tensions with, with, with my wife, who, who is a godly woman. When you go through a downturn, friends, the lifelong lessons of the heart are there. So each of them, from Abraham to Isaac, Jacob and Joseph, had to learn the full meaning of full faith and obedience to God and His promises and His word and His will. So what was the lifelong lesson for Joseph? Joseph's lifelong learning from 17 years of age till his end, as climax here, in this scene of reconciliation with his brothers was what? He had to endure evil from the closest quarter. If evil was outside your family, you can shut the door when you come home. But if evil is within your family, you can't shut the door. Evil was up close and personal to Joseph. He was, remember the story? He was sent innocently, sincerely, and he obeyed his father, he travelled 50 kilometres to find his brothers, to see whether they were okay. The moment they saw him, recorded in Genesis 37, they plotted to kill him. He had to endure evil from the closest quarters, up close and personal. 
that he had no chance to close the door on. He had to resist the deepest temptation, both relationally and sexually. And I said earlier, when we face this, the drip, drip, drip temptation that comes, which man is able to resist that? And then he had to reject vengeance to take things into his hands. Have now my brothers have come to seek for help. They do not recognize me, but I'm their brother. Remember, he turned and he cried when he saw them. And how does he stay hopeful? How does he stay faithful? The lesson of the gospel is lifelong lesson. God, show me your will. I can't see your will. I can't see your hand. Oh, help me, God. Help me, God. You would find Joseph in that position again and again. Four things. Four experiences. Could you be experiencing one or two or three or four, all four of them? That you're enduring evil, that you're resisting the deepest kinds of temptations a man and woman could face, that you have to reject every thought, every inclination to take revenge, and you have to stay hopeful. Totally humanly impossible. Sounds like it. And then as we canvas and look, not simply at the summary of Joseph's life, but now a summary of the whole book, told in the life of the four patriarchs. With Abraham, God promised him blessings. So he was the first, recipients, first recipient of blessings. And the blessings was then fulfilled with Isaac because he is that long-awaited child. He finally comes. With Jacob, he is there in God's redemption story because from him and all the different women of his life, from Leah, whom he did not love, to Rachel, whom he loved but had no children for so many years, and then the two maids that came along, he became the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Joseph is now put there. In God's timing, he finds himself in Egypt by the treachery of his brothers, but is put there finally, as he acknowledges, as the preserver of his family. <laughs> A family that tried to kill him, he now ends up as the preserver of his family. Can you see the gospel paradox of that? You must never reach the wrong conclusions from your circumstances, prematurely and wrongly. Circumstances do not have the final word. The God over our circumstances has the final word. And so, the purpose of the patriarchs. And the purpose of Genesis is actually to propel Israel onto world history. Because if you do not know how the 12 tribes came about, you will not know about this tiny, puny nation called Israel. And you ask yourself, now, thousands of years later, what on earth does Israel's history have to do with me? a Singaporean, a Malaysian, an Australian, an American, a Caucasian, an African. What on earth does a tiny, puny nation and its history have to do with me? Is God's way of saying to all the nations, beginning with Canaan, who were much more powerful in every way, politically, economically, militarily, sociologically, in every way, more powerful than 12 tribes, that your whole destiny depends on them. That global blessings belong to this people. And apart from knowing their story, you will not be part of God's purposes. So whatever you do not know of this book, beginning with the first book, it catapults Israel into, onto the world stage. This was the breakout moment what does that mean for us? The purpose of the three blessings. So we've gone from the four patriarchs, but the three blessings. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house where the first blessing is land. The first blessing is land. And verse 2, 
I will make you into a great nation. The second blessing is descendants, children, a great nation. And I will bless those, I will bless you, and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And so we coined the phrase, blessed to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and all who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Sorry, I missed that, but shall be blessed. So three blessings promised to the four patriarchs. Blessings of land, blessing of descendants, and in them and through them, blessings for the whole world. When Abraham and his stepped out with Sarai, they didn't know the full implications of this. They just knew that God had spoken to them and they stepped out in faith and obedience. So when you look at the total story and what it means for us, between Genesis 3 to Genesis 11, actually it's not 1, Genesis 3, because 1 and 2 is filled with blessings when God first created us before the fall. But from Genesis 3 onwards, there are five references to curses since men and women rebel against God. And those verses are there for you. Did you notice when God called Abraham and Sarah, the three blessings of land, of children, many descendants, and of global blessings, the word bless is used five times. And I think it's no coincidence that the five blessings perhaps is the cancellation of the five curses that, that describes and define our life outside God and against God's purposes. Which means, you want a blessed life? There is only one channel for blessing. You tune in to any other channel, you're not going to get this signal. There's only one way you're going to be blessed, by the true and the living God. Only God can undo all the curses of the fall. So, in Joseph's life himself, blessed to be a blessing. And it all began with Abraham. Specifically for him, who did he bless? As he became the right-hand man of Pharaoh. All his wise policies of storing up grain so that when famine came, everybody may not have food, but they will have food. Friends, have you forgotten how nervous we got when COVID first hit us? Didn't, didn't I see you there at the supermarket rushing for the same toilet roll? It was you, right? The same noodles? Every time the government made an announcement, bang, there'll be a rush at the supermarket. And countries that didn't get COVID yet, they were laughing at us. Then nobody laughed in Australia after that because people were fighting in supermarkets. People were fighting in America. Then we had to ask ourselves, well, did we have enough food supplies and for how long? And then the video went out that, that one of the ministers says, our food supplies? We do not know. We, we've, we've planned for many years. How many years? When something bad hits you, you want to know whether you have enough food and for how long? By the wisdom of God, in the circumstances that God orchestrated for Joseph, he blessed the Egyptians. He blessed all nations who came from the famine to seek refuge, to seek resources, to seek life. He blessed his brothers and preserved Israel and the preservation of Israel. Tiny, puny, forgettable Israel tiny, puny, forgettable Israel. If we are red dot, I do not know what's Israel. Surely it was a dot, a very small dot in human history. What does this small dot have to do with us? Because from this small dot, right, we have to decide two things. There are two humanities. And you look at the life in the life of uh, the patriarchs, there are right and wrong ways to be blessed. Wrong ways to be blessed is a leftover of what? The wrong ways to be blessed is the leftover of the Tower of Babel. And the Tower of Babel is the mimicking of God. It was God who said in Genesis 1.26, let us make men in our image. Let us, let us, the Trinitarian God making men and women in His image. By Genesis 11, 
is the height of total human rebellion. When we are united, we are united as nations. Did I just say that? When we are united, we are united in autonomy against God. We will solve our problems through WHO. We will solve our problems through the United Nations. Really? What problems have we really solved? We have tweaked some things, but we have never solved the problem of death. Because death is not a human problem. It's a spiritual problem against God. So let us build, let us make a name. And I, I said in my sermon, stay away from the Kapo Road. For those who are tuning in and you're not Chinese, you're not Hokkien, a dialect group here, Kapo means the busy body road. Did you notice that every time Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they thought of their own wise ways to help God along with His promises, they messed it up? Did you notice that? Every time... Right? They waited and waited and then says, Sarah says, maybe it's not Sarah, maybe it's Hagar. And in the Hebrew, it sounds quite alike. Maybe it's not through me, maybe it's through Hagar, the maid. Every time they put in their own wisdom, their own self-rescue and self-redemption, they messed it up. So from Genesis 15 on, there are eight crises and all the eight crises was each one of them taking things into their own hands. And to reverse this eight crisis that they brought, all the way from Abraham lying twice about Sarah, to Sarah asking him to sleep with Hagar, to then later on Leah coming along, and then the maids coming along. Eight crises, but each time God reminds them, what did I say to you originally? I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. What do you say to Abraham? I will bless you. I will give you the land. I will give you descendants. And God will go on to expand that to say, as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. You ever look at the stars lately? Seven divine, human, uh, divine assurances. So what can God do about from Jacob's life to Joseph's life, as we see this transition at the end, what could he do about this? Leah is unloved, but she's undying in her efforts. She keeps having child after child after child to earn this. What can God do about this? What about Rachel? She's so loved, but she's still dissatisfied. And then she's now bitter and almost murderous towards Leah. What can God do about Jacob's grabbing? His name is Grab. He started this company, Grab, right? He's grabbing away and he's cunning. What can God do about them? God makes him meet his father-in-law who is more cunning than him to learn his bitter lesson. What can you do about a father's favoritism? Each one of them presented a crisis for God's promise of blessing to be fulfilled. Each one of them elicited human wisdom and human rescue and human redemption. Maybe I should help God along. Each one of them was a capo road. Let me help God along. And each one of them made it more complex, more sophisticated, more problematic. What can we do about brothers inherited envy and triggered murderous anger? Can you do anything about it? Many of us, known or unknown, are traumatized by our families, you know that? And we have, Mona and I have done lots of ministry and counseling, even more perhaps, over the last, from February to now. Understandable. Understandable. Because you just need to read the literature out there and put your ear to the ground. There's an explosion of mental unwellness all around the world. And his mental unwellness all around the world. Some people, it was my dad. I've not gotten over my dad and his favoritism against me, his discrimination against me. Always favoured my brother, always favoured my sister. What on earth can you do against that? That you've been traumatised and victimised by this? Does God know your piercing pain? As you step back and understand this in summary, 
The purpose, not simply of the patriarchs, right, is to, sorry, we saw this, the purpose of Genesis and Jesus. We draw the storyline and we read in opening Galatians chapter 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, if you have faith that Jesus is the Christ, which means the King who has come to save us, then you are God's offspring. No, he says, then you are Abraham's offspring, as according to the promise. You see the storyline? The promise God made all the way back to Abraham, now finally fulfilled in the true Israelite, Jesus, is actually to make sure that you are blessed by God. You're on the right side of God, not cursed by God. Born only to grow up. Born only to grow old. How many of you think you're not growing old? Please put up your hands. You are mentally unwell. You are, are growing old by the moment. Your cells are dying by the moment. Do you think God created us? His original design, His good design, was to create you only to grow up, grow old and die? No. That was never His purpose. Death was never part of our human experience until Satan turned up in the form of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. And when Satan turns up, rebellion and sin turn up in our life. And the wages of sin is death. Romans chapter 6 will tell you that. So it is Jesus, the final fulfillment of this. So in the purpose of Genesis, you draw the dot line, what we call biblical theology, to Jesus, the true Israelite, is to propel Jesus onto world history. And just in case it sounds so macro for you, right? I thought I'd put it there in the red for you. Is to propel Jesus into your life and my life. That's the whole purpose of this book. The hundreds of thousands of words, the thousands of pages, is to give you one last chance your best chance, your only chance to know the true and the living God. That you and me were not born only to grow up, grow old and die and live on the wrong side of God forever. You and me were created by God to live with Him forever. And that can only come if you believe in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, your heirs according to the promise that He made all those years ago. So I do not know what you think God is doing through COVID-19. But this is what you must take away and I must take away as you come to the end of Genesis in chapter 50, as you summarize this. Whatever you do not realize, God is working feverishly. God is working untiringly to ordain all the circumstances of our life so that Christopher Chair would come to know Jesus as my Saviour and my Lord. So that Ellen will come to know Jesus, so that Wendy will come to know Jesus, so that Jane will come to know Jesus. I'm naming as many names, so that CH will come to know Jesus. Whatever you do not know, when things happen to you and you have no comprehension, why do circumstances have happened? Why my father's favouritism has happened? Why my brother's uh, sibling rivalry has gotten me into trouble? Why have I lost my job? Why have I lost... God has orchestrated all things to bring you to the foot of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Him and through Him, by simple faith in Him, we move from curses to blessings. Amen? Whatever you do not know. So I've told my salvation story and now I'm encouraging this more and more over the years for all our gathering of our leaders, right? Our elders and deacons, when we pre-COVID had a retreat, our pastoral staff, when we have something, end of the year, beginning of the year. You know, you and me could sit around in your discipleship groups, but maybe you have never, you, you may be serving in the boys' brigade, you could be serving in the in this band here, or the musicians, or the singers, but you ever sat around to share each other's salvation story? How God orchestrated all the events of your life to save you? 
It's so strange that we may work together, minister together, but we never told each other how the Lord saved you and me. So increasingly so. So we just had a gathering among our, our Presbyterian leaders and that was suggested to them. Why don't we just sit around and, you know, you tell me your story in packs of five. You tell me your story, I'll tell you my story. And that brings so much encouragement to our hearts. Maybe when you gather for that New Year's Eve dinner, you may want to share your salvation story and share the COVID-19 deliverance story. Salvation is the big picture, but deliverance this year in COVID-19 may be a small snapshot of that big picture where God has propelled Jesus into your story. My story, I've told you in different ways, the gap between me and my parents. My mom gave birth to me at 48, 49, right? The gap between me and my dad was 50 years. That's a very huge gap. So when I got the opportunity to go and study in Sydney, Australia, right, my hardest thing as I got on the plane as an 18, 19-year-old young man was, will I see my parents again? Who were by that time about 70 years old, and my dad already had so many illnesses. So I walked around my campus, walked from one tutorial to one lecture, not interested in the lectures, not interested in the content, but is there anyone who would talk to me about the purpose of life? Can somebody tell me about the meaning of death? What if I lost my parents? Is there a reason for me to do well in school anymore? My parents whom I dearly love as the youngest child? And slowly but surely God orchestrated things as I look back. Then almost every week, every month, I'll be bumping into a Christian. For 18 years of my life, I didn't bump into any Christians. But in every tutorial, in every lecture, boom, another Christian. Boom, another Christian. Where did it all come from? My goodness. It was God's way of cornering me to salvation. Is God doing that to you? Cornering you into salvation is the most loving thing God can do to you. And that's the whole story of the Bible. Propelling Jesus not simply into your consciousness, but into your life for your greatest good. And so, the gospel story is, is the one story of the one God, of the one way of salvation. I haven't made the most significant point about Joseph and draw the storyline from Joseph to Jesus. When you look at Joseph, what's the standout thing about him? Okay, so look at people around you. Can you just look at them? Do you recognize them? Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, this is a very good one, you know. It takes a while to recognize people. Yeah, so in all those months uh, that I've been out there, wherever, almost every place I've gone to, Pastor Chris! <laughs> I'm totally recognizable because of my hair. So sometimes you go to places, I'm sure here nobody will recognize me. Boom, Pastor Chris. <laughs> What's the standout thing about each other if you know the person on your left and right? What's the standout thing if you're married about your husband and wife? The standout characteristic, the standout virtue of your friend, the standout virtue of your brother, the standout virtue of your, the standout virtue of Joseph must be his costly forgiveness of his brothers. Totally didn't cross his brother's mind that Joseph may have thought of forgiving them. And so, even in this last encounter, they had to hatch something called use the name or misuse the name of the father, come under the umbrella of the father's name so that he would not repay us for evil. But the number one thing that was laid upon Joseph's heart was this unthinkable, impossible, costly forgiveness of his brothers. And so, I was preaching at a conference in Australia. And um, of course, when you have a conference, you do not know who comes. I think it was in Perth, in Western Australia. Then in walked a huge group of Aboriginal Australians. Then after the sermon, it was an evangelistic sermon calling people to salvation. Right. The person who brought them was a missionary to them, a Caucasian Australian. And he said, after the thing, 
You know, when you spoke about the cross and you spoke about forgiveness as the way to reconcile the deepest and truest of human brokenness and pain, this group of at-risk teenagers who are all in halfway homes, and I'm working among them, in their tribe, in their clan, they have no concept of forgiveness. There is no word in their language for forgive. That's why it's very hard to share the gospel with them. But thank you that you tried. I didn't know they were coming. But I tried my very best. I forget what passage I used to bring about the unthinkable, humanly impossible, costly forgiveness. And we saw a snapshot of that in Joseph. You see the fulfilled version of it in Jesus and the cross. Whatever God is not propelling and catapulting into your life is the costly sacrifice of Jesus. That is at the heart of this redemption story. It's all about the cross, amen? And in Him and through Him, we find new life. And so, that missionary said, so many of them, all their life, right, the way to settle scores was simply to fight it out and find it out even to the point of death. That's the only way they know how to resolve conflicts. So for the first time, they prayed the prayer to believe. Can you speak to them? Can you go and pray with them? I thank God that He gave me that background. I've never heard of something like that. That among a people group, there is no concept, let alone word, for forgiveness. For the only way to resolve conflict is an eye for an eye. And at the end of the day, who stands? This is the story of the Bible. And so we're going to end our time together by singing a song. It's all about the cross. And after that, we will, we will celebrate this on-site in terms of those who are here, the communion, while the service ends for those online. Thank you all for joining us in our service, those who have joined us online. That brings our service to a close, but our ministry continues as God speaks to our hearts, as God's Spirit works in us, orchestrating all the events of our life to know Jesus and to live for Jesus. Thank you.